The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now look with me, if you would, in Romans chapter 5, we return to verses 1 through 5 and follow along with me in God's Word, which is inspired and errant and infallible. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. There's a little book in your Bible. My guess is you maybe have never heard it preached. Um, and uh, therefore, its little nuggets of wonderful blessing uh, have been missed by many. Uh, it's, it's in your Old Testament. It's called the book of Esther. And it has an interesting statement that people have seized upon throughout the ages. And I want to draw your attention to it and what happens in light of it. An adopted father for Esther, who was queen, um, and, um, and she, of course, with King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus uh, she um, had this position as queen, which was kind of over all of the concubine is what it amounts to pretty much. And, um, and she was a Jewish woman there in captivity, had risen to this position. Uh, and yet, as she was there, in the midst of all of this, a, uh, a, a plan had been concocted not only to kill particular Jewish leaders, but really to bring a genocide against the Jews. Well, her adopted father is a man by the name of Mordecai, is actually her cousin, but her adopted father, uh, who took care of her after the death of her father, uh, he stepped in on behalf of his uncle and raised her. But he came to her with a very clear statement. Basically, it was understanding you're in a very unique position. It's not a, it's, it's a position that is crucial at this moment and this time. Your people are in danger. You can at least approach the king as the queen. It's a dangerous thing to approach because whenever you approach, even as the queen, he will either present the sword and you lose your life. Or he will present the scepter, 
and draw you in. And so she stands in this precarious position and he challenges her. Have you not been placed here for such a time as this? Have you not been placed here for such a time as this? You know, um, recently my son who years ago, and because of his uh, academic and spiritual work, introduced me to another whole level of Lewis and Tolkien that I'd never seen. And, um, and then, and one of the things that, um, that um, really takes hold of me uh, out of Tolkien's Fellowship of the Rings is that moment, I was so glad when they did the movies, they kept it in, that moment when Frodo, who, is, who has undergone adversity after adversity, he's been wounded, he's been left for dead, he's had, uh, he's had abandonment, and he has had to leave everything. And as he looks at all of the adversity he's faced, he says this, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Then Gandalf looks at him and very calmly says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do, all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that was given to us. What will we do with the time given to us? I've often wondered if maybe Tolkien thought of Esther. When Mordecai says, for such a time as this, she prepared herself. She prayed and consecrated herself. She anticipated her approach to the king would bring her death. She knelt outside the door. She sent in the request from which the decision would be made. And when the door opened, not the sword, but the golden scepter was extended to her. That's what I love about this text. This text is the golden scepter from King Jesus extended to us. In the days of the Reformation, the church was corrupted in its leadership, in its doctrine. It had corrupted its mission. It had corrupted its use of its resources. Corruption had reigned, and God raised up reformers. And the two passages of Scripture that took hold of them, the two passages that laid hold of them, was Romans 4 and Romans 5. I'm not going to go, I'm sorry, Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5. And I'm not going back over it, but if I can give you what the distillation was in the Reformation, after understanding who we are, We're sinners, helpless and hopeless. Sinners, Romans 1, that we are in need of the gospel of God, which is the power of God and the righteousness of God. Romans 
One that all of pagan, all the pagan unbelievers are lost. Romans two, religious unbelievers, religious pagans are lost. And then Romans two and three, the Jewish people are lost without Christ. Jew and Gentile. Therefore, the gospel is glorious. Why? And he's eager to preach it because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And when he gets to the end of it, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then he says, but here is the answer. In fact, if you look at that text I just read, go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. You see that very first word? Therefore. That goes back to chapter 4, which explains that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And the scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Knox, all of them grabbed hold of that text that says in Romans chapter 4. Where it says, the scripture says. My mind is captive to the word of God. I cannot violate the word of God. It captivates our conscience. Here I stand, Luther says. I can do no other. And the scripture alone informs us the only way we can be saved is through Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And how is that done? Well, this therefore goes back. If you can kind of just kind of in your mind remove that little division that says chapter 5 and step back up to that last verse of chapter 4. And who is this Jesus? The one who, look what it says, who was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. In other words, God's Son becomes a man. He humbles himself. He goes to the cross. Our sins are put on him. And at the cross, he dies not a model death, not a martyr's death, not a revolutionary death. He dies an atoning death. It had already been uh, it had already been taught throughout the Old Testament for year after year with the Passover, with all of the offerings, that sinners need a sacrificial offering. But the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons and doves can't do it. So they were back year after year after year. But now, on this day, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, goes to the cross and takes our sins, all the sins of all of his people for all of eternity upon himself, and he pays for it. And then he says, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then he is laid in a grave. The third day, in fulfillment of the scriptures, he is raised, which is God's shout that he is satisfied. He was delivered up to pay for our sins. He was raised as a declaration that we're justified. This is amazing. When by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you come to Christ, you are headed to a judgment seat, but you already have your verdict now. Innocent. Your sins have been removed. 
His righteousness clothes you. You are justified. Not, that's not just forgiven. That's not just pardoned. That's innocent. Because your sins have been removed and his righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, this king who went to that cross and died for us. When you come to him, he points to you, not the sword of judgment. He's already taken it. He gives you the golden scepter. And all of these blessings, which are so glorious. I love Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him, we have all those blessings. So Romans 5 does not give us all those blessings, but it gives us the golden scepter of five legacy blessings for those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It just, it ties them together one after another. And it presents us to it, which is foundational for our life in Christ and for Christ so that we would understand it. And that's why I've taken the time. I acknowledge, listen, can I just give you some good news? We're going to start getting verses in clumps again. I promise that. But right now in Romans 5, I want you to know these five legacy blessings. I want you to know the golden scepter from the king. That has been extended to you by grace through faith in Christ. And the very first one he gives to you is this one. We have peace with God. Look at, look at, chapter, look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, in light of his death and resurrection, there, therefore, we have been justified by faith through Christ. And what? We have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified, notice not possibly if you do good because of what Jesus did, his work on the cross, you are justified. Therefore, we have been justified. And because we've been justified by faith, what do we have? Here's legacy blessing number one. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got peace with God. Now, why do we have that? Because who is Jesus? He is the prince of peace. And what is the gospel? It is the gospel of peace. Now, that is only meaningful when you understand the first three chapters that tells you you're not at peace with God. You're an enemy of God. And sin is what we use to assault the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are his adversaries. We are his enemies. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly and his enemies. He went to the cross to pay for our sins. And because of what he has done, we notice the past tense. We have peace with God. Now, let me also tell you, you not only have peace with God, you've got the peace of God. 
You not only have a legal peace with God, you have a subjective peace of God. Be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known unto God, and the peace of God will rule and reign in your heart. Christ will stand sentry over your heart. The one, the Prince of Peace, who has made peace with God in life and all of its turmoil gives you the peace of God. So you have peace of God. This is a legacy blessing. Do you see how Jesus gives it to you? He gives it to you in John 14 and 16. And this is what he says in those chapters. Peace I leave with. You hear that inheritance language? You hear that legacy language? Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not the world's peace. My peace I give to you. In the world, you will have tribulation. In me, you have peace. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Here is the glorious promise that he has given to us. Peace with God. But that then leads us to the second blessing. Because you've got peace with God, guess what you now have? You have access and standing. Before you come to Christ, you don't have access. You don't have standing. You have no rights. None whatsoever. You're outside the door. For us to understand it, just go back to the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? The sword came in the hand of the angels to drive them out. You have no standing. You have no access. But Christ has come and made way. Christ has come and opened the way. So now there is no door when you come to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the door. When you come to Christ, you now have access to God and standing with God. You've got both of those now in the Lord. So when those challenges come in life, any challenges come this week? Possibly in your life? Any adversity? Anything happen? In a broken world this week, you can go right to him. The way's been opened. It's been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. You don't need to go through your preacher. You don't need to go through ritual. You don't need to go through, um, you don't need to go through rites. You can go directly to him in the name of Christ. And when you get there, you have standing. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. On the Lord's day, you can gather with God's people, and he not only comes to indwell us, he then ushers our praise into the presence of God. So we worship the Father through the Son in the Spirit, and we have standing just as the angels that surround the throne. We have access and standing. And then not only do you have access and standing, but the third blessing is you rejoice in the hope of glory. You've got, we sing it, don't we? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Right now, what have we got? We got a foretaste, but what's coming is glory divine. There is what we rejoice in the hope 
of glory. Well, now that we're back here, we come to a fourth legacy blessing. And I want you to see it. And I want you to look at the connecting, the connecting grammar that he uses. Would you go back with me to Romans 5 just for a moment? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Look at that language. Since, in light of, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, connecting tissue. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access and faith. Then connecting. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now look at this connecting. Not only that. Now watch. Not only that. What's the that? Not only do we have peace with God, access to God, standing with God, rejoicing in the assured hope, the blessed hope that he is our God and our Savior. Not only that, now watch, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice. Who's rejoicing in their sufferings? Those who are rejoicing in those sufferings are those who are justified by grace through faith in Christ. Who is rejoicing in their sufferings? Those who have peace with God. Who is rejoicing in their sufferings? Those who have access and standing with God. See the we? The we consistently works throughout the text. Who who rejoices in the hope of glory? We who have peace and access and standing rejoice in the hope of glory. Now, what else do those we do? They rejoice in their sufferings. Notice, they don't rejoice in the sufferings of others. But they are found rejoicing in their sufferings. That's what they're found doing. And why do they do that? Go with me just another step. They rejoice, we rejoice in our sufferings, what we are personally suffering for Christ. Why? Knowing that suffering. So before I go any further, knowing. Brothers and sisters, let me just make this as clear as I can. Christianity is not an invented religion. It's a revealed religion. Religion declaring our relationship with God through the grace of God that's found in Christ. We are not people who write the book. We are the people of the book. We know. These things have I written that you might know that you have eternal life. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love. Well, how do we know? We don't know it because we've invented a philosophy of Christianity. We know it because God has revealed the truth of who we are in Christ by creation, redemption, and providence. We know God's word is true. Let every man be a liar. That's why we can know this isn't 
our preacher came up with this. This isn't Briarwood came up with this. This isn't the Presbyterian Church in America came up with this. This isn't that the Council of Nicaea came up with this. This is his church and his councils and his confessions distilling what is inerrantly, infallibly, and sufficiently true, God's word. And because God's word says this, we know. And God's word tells us suffering is purposed in the sovereign hand of God. I am not moving from accident to accident and how will you stoically deal with it? No, I know something. I can trace the rainbow through the rain. We have a biblical worldview that is rooted in the truth of who God is, who has revealed the truth to us in his word. And what does his word tell us about our suffering? Now, watch again. Not everybody. This this is not for those who are outside of Christ. This is for those who have been justified by faith, peace with God, access, standing, and rejoice in the hope of glory. Here's something else you know. Your suffering is, look at that word repeated time again, your suffering is productive. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Here is, this is not an accident. This is a sovereign hand of God that is working. Therefore, you rejoice. Now, I, I said something five, um, wait a minute. Yes, five weeks ago about this word rejoice. Would you go with me there to chapter five and look, look down at verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. In the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice. You see that rejoice used two times, right? Hello. Thank you. Let's let's pretend like we're not Presbyterians for a few minutes, okay? Ready? Do you see that word rejoice? Two times, right? Let me show you the other two times that led up to hit. Go back, if you would, to chapter... Go back with me to chapter 3. Go back with me to chapter 3. And uh, slip down in chapter 3, down to verse 27. What then becomes of our, what's that next word? Boasting. It's the same word translated rejoice in chapter 5. Same word. Here it's translated what? Boasting. And slip down, if you would, to chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to what? Boast. Same word. Well, here it's called boasting. Now get over to chapter 5 and it's called what? Rejoicing. Can it be translated rejoice? Yes. I would rather it had been translated boasting to keep the thread moving. But our translators decided to do rejoice. And I understand there is something a little bit different in the usage in chapter 5 than in the usage in 327 and 4.2. I understand that. But if I may say, here I think the New American Standard comes to our rescue. The New American Standard translation translates this, exult. We exult in the hope of glory and we exult 
We boast in our sufferings, not in suffering, in our sufferings, which have purpose and are productive. They come from the hand of God. So the next time you turn on your television, listen to an MP, and it says, if you've got problems, come to Jesus and he'll alleviate you of your problems. Cut the thing off and run as fast as you can away from it. The problems that Jesus takes away from us are the problems we have produced with our sins. He saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And he is increasingly saving us from the practice of sin. And when he brings us home, he'll save us from the presence of sin. But folks, when I came to Jesus, I had no idea how many problems he was about to give me. I mean, I got a problem with things in my life that I had already made peace with. Now I'm convicted. You know why? There's sin. I've got problems, and now I've got to think about how do I live my life in order to properly present the gospel to others, not just live my life for myself. I live my life for Jesus. That means I've got a mission. That means I'm a missionary. How do you do that? How do you connect to other people? How do you deal with sins? How do you flee temptation? How do you pursue holiness? That literally means setting a trap for holiness. How do you do that? And then once you become a believer, guess what? Guess what happens? You got an old man that's going to rebel inside of you and you've got Satan in the world that's going to come after you. And Jesus says, I'm sovereignly using all of this for your benefit. That's what you just confessed a while ago. We went through Paul, Peter, and Jesus for our confession of truth a while ago. What does Paul tell you? It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but to Suffer for his sake. Rejoice always. What does Peter say? Everyone who knows him will suffer for him. Every true believer in some way, to some extent, in some manner, will suffer for Christ. What does Jesus say? In me, you have peace. In the world, you got tribulation. If they persecuted me, how much more are they going to persecute you? Jesus even says, the gospel promises is I'm going to set you free from your sins. I'm going to deliver you from your sin. I'm also promising you something else. The world is coming after you. Satan is coming after you. But take courage. I've overcome them all. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In fact, Jesus gives us the promise of the suffering we will face and then gives it to us as a benediction. You know, at the end of the service, when we hold up our hands, okay, I'm not asking you to do it, but you can hold up your hands right now. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake. Next word. Rejoice. And be glad. Rejoice. And be glad. Because you know something. 
you know he is working in your life through suffering. The root word of suffering, the root word of suffering is an interesting word. It literally means pressured, to be pressured. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit. What do we mean sufferings in the hand of a sovereign God? Sufferings that are productive, that have purpose in our life. Sufferings that produce endurance in our life. Well, I think the best way I can try to get this across to you, giving justice to the root of the word that means pressured, um, is I've told you my first car, my 57 pink Ford. Anybody remember that? Remember that? Okay. My, they didn't tell you my second car, which really wasn't my car. It was my daddy's car that he let me use because of what happened to the 57 Ford, which I will not tell you what happened to the 57 Ford. Um, but then he said, okay, our next deal is I'm going to let you use the Impala. He said, but here's your deal. You got to put gas in it. And secondly, you got to wax it once a month. I said, okay. He said, now come here. I'm going to show you how to wax it. So my daddy took me out. Cherry red Impala is one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. 65 Impala, the most beautiful. Go look it up. Google it. You'll, you'll just have to battle covetousness the rest of your life. And he said, you got to, what you do is you are going to wax it. Not go down and pour wax on it and ride out and think you've waxed it. Wax it. Here's the pre-wax. Here's the wax. And I started to work on it. He said, boy, I said, wax it. Now, boy, when he said, boy, I knew what that meant. Boy, wax it. I said, yes, sir. I'm waxing it. He said, no, you're not. He said, you got to give it some elbow grease. To this day, I have no idea where you get elbow grease. But I know I was supposed to come up with it. And it had something to do with rubbing hard and applying pressure. And then I said, how's it, Dad? He said, son, it's not there yet. You need some, if you think elbow grease, wait till the next thing he said to me, son, you need some spizzerinctum. To this day, I have no idea what spizzerinctum is, but I knew it was elbow grease on steroids. That's what I knew it was. And so you really need to rub it and rub it hard. And then I put elbow grease and spizzerinctum, and then I stood back and I said, Dad, how about that? He said, look at it. And I said, he said, what do you see? I said, well, it looks shiny to me. He said, do you see yourself? I said, no. He said, keep rubbing. That's your test. Peter picks up on this when he calls our suffering refiner's fire. You know how a refiner, he's got the gold, he heats it up, it melts into liquid, and the dross comes up. You just sung that a while ago. And then he sweeps the dross away to purify it. So he's not only polishing, he's purifying. And then the refiner keeps doing that until he can look at the liquid gold and see his face in it. And the face we're looking for is not ours, but Jesus, that we display Jesus. Suffering produces endurance. The key to that word endurance is back in the word suffering. You see the S at the end of suffering? That means there's more than one. That means it's continuous. 
That means suffering is a test that is continually applied with multiple sufferings to get the job done of sanctification in our life. Therefore, count it all joy when you encounter trials and testing, knowing the trying of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. James says it. Paul says it. Philip. Peter says it. And listen, this is not a flight of oratorical pick-me-up. This isn't Coach Paul getting us through the game of adversity. This is Paul telling you what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. I, I don't have time. I'm sorry I don't. But you go read 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen, And Paul says, I will not boast in my strengths. I was whipped I was, I was whipped 40 times minus one three times. I was stoned. I was cast over a wall. I was led into the wilderness. I was pursued in the city. I was pursued in the wilderness. I, was, I had nothing to eat. I had nothing to drink. And I will boast in my sufferings. I'm not going to boast about how many churches I planted. I'm not going to boast about how many people I led to Jesus. I'm not going to boast about how many epistles I put in the New Testament. I will boast in my sufferings. That's what I will do. And so he declares his willingness to boast in his sufferings. And he tells us this is a legacy blessing. To exalt in your sufferings that produces endurance. Endurance is the sufferings, and the testing. Now remember, test. What does a test do? A test, and that's what sufferings are. They're tests, trials in our life. What does a test do? A test does three things. It shows you what you know. It shows you what you don't know. And it shows you what you need to know. So I will rejoice not only in the test of suffering, but the sufferings, plural, because as they keep coming, it demonstrates endurance. So let me ask you, anybody here, you don't need to raise your hand. Anybody here ever flown? Yep, you flown? Plane? What if I told you, well, they just flew that, they made it, but they didn't test it. What would you say? Sounds like a good idea to you? I'll tell you what I'd say. I want my money back. I'm not going up on something that hadn't been tested. I want, you need to find out, is everything okay? Well, what if I told you, well, yeah, that's a, there's a plane you can fly, but it's only been tested once. No, you want something to be tested time and time again so that you don't want to be part of the shakedown cruise. You want it to have been done. I remember when I went to my heart doctor who sits here each Sunday. He'll know that he can verify this. And they gave me a stress test. And that wasn't just a momentary test. They put me on this silly thing that I had to get up. And they were testing my heartbeat. And I had to keep moving that thing until it got up to 140 beats. And it was at 110 and the lady said, you got to go faster. I said, I can't go any faster. 
She said, you've got to go faster. We've got to get this up to double your heart rate. You've got to get this to 140 to 145. I said, ma'am, remember my heart rate, heart rate is 55. I am doubled at 110. If I get to 145, you're going to need to call an ambulance is what you're going to need to do. But it was a stress test to find out, are there any weaknesses? So God brings and orchestrates the test for your good, his glory. He's he's amplifying you and making you an amplifier of his grace and his mercy. And he keeps bringing it as he... As he is bringing you endurance, then endurance brings character. Listen, character is simply this. Circumstances do not dictate your character. Circumstances of adversity do not dictate your character. You're not a victim. Circumstances do not dictate your character. They reveal it and refine it. When they cut the light off, what you do next tells everybody who you are. When nobody's looking, tells everybody who you are and tells you who you are. Who am I? What do I know? What do I need to know? What don't I know? That's suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And then praise the Lord, we're back full circle. Now we're rejoicing in hope again. And, and, and hope does, and, and now that suffering, um, suffering produces character, character produces, I mean, endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now the hope keeps getting secured in our life as we find that the anchor holds in Jesus Christ. And why, why do we have hope? Look at that next verse. For the love of God has been poured out upon us. See, most of us think, most of us think that if God loved us, he would keep the suffering away from us. Here's what God says. Those whom the Father loves, he disciplines. That's the same phrase. Fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And therefore, what we see in our suffering, and he is always with us and holds us fast. And is forming us, is purifying us, is preparing us. What we see and feel is his love for us. No discipline seems joyful at the time, but it yields fruit. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. I read a little story one time about a... um, um, I had a guy, by the way, after the first service that told me, he knows the guy that shared this story, and it was a true story. But he... um, But there was a story of a kid that just loved insects. He particularly loved caterpillars. And he watched and loved to see the caterpillar weave the cocoon, crawl into the cocoon, and come out as a beautiful... That's the word metamorphosis. We get the word transformed. Don't be conformed to the world, but be metamorphosized. Uh, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so that's what this kid would look at that. And he just loved the moment. And he loved it. But what he... It just pained him to watch the struggle 
of the butterfly coming out the small opening of the cocoon. And out of his declaration of love, he reached back up and he knows about the time it's going to come and he cuts open the end of the cocoon so that he can come out with no struggle. And when he comes out, he falls dead to the floor, unable to fly. It was actually the struggle that gave the strength to the wings to fly. That's, but God loves us. He doesn't cut the end of the cocoon. He tightens it. No testing has come to you that is not common to man. And with it, the Lord is making the way of your escape. So we rejoice that what he is doing in our life, even though what we're experiencing is not joyful at the time. Well, I'm out of time. So let me just give you the takeaway. and We'll close in prayer. Because Christians... Because Christians have peace with God. Remember, we're we're at the fourth legacy blessing. We have legacy number one, peace with God. Legacy number two, access to and standing before God. And we not only rejoice in hope, third blessing, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because the sufferings that we encounter under a sovereign God do not destroy our life in Christ. They develop and display our life for Christ. That's what he is doing in your life and in mine. For some of us, it's tough. (laughs) Let me just tell you, if you're a young Christian today, man, learn this thing and grow. Because, I mean, you're in a great spot. When you get a little older and the Lord starts working on you, on us, when you get older, the clay ain't wet. And it's hard to mold hard clay. So he starts chiseling on us. But while you're there in these early years, can I say something to you, parents? I'm going to talk about the sanctity of family in our Sunday night series, but I just want to say something to you. Please hear me. I'm your pastor, and I love you. Don't bubble wrap your children. Let them face adversity. It's how they grow so they can leave you. Don't bubble wrap them. Coaches, Teachers, counselors, disciples, Sunday school. Let these people come into their life. Don't try to make everything perfect. Jesus doesn't bubble wrap you, but he holds you. He forms you. He frames you. He sustains you. He's your anchor. And it holds his sufferings that he sovereignly sends and allows that the world will bring against you. What he's doing is teaching you, framing you. What he is doing is developing you. He's not destroying you. He's giving you a platform for your life to make something uh, to the glory of Christ. That's what he's doing. He's holding you. He's anchoring you. He's keeping you. He is framing you. I'm reminded of a story that I had the privilege to watch and read 
um, from a New York magazine. There was this guy that lived up in, right between Virginia and West Virginia, up in the mountains. This guy was amazing. He was a mountaineer, just a plain old Appalachian mountaineer. And he read, uh, it's really an interesting story to read. He made these beautiful oak carvings of stallions. The mane looked real, the the nostrils, almost like you could see the breath coming out of the nostrils, the hooves pawing in the air, the strong legs as they stood. It was just beautiful carvings, and they got to be more and more and more expensive. And so this guy comes down from an arts magazine to interview him from New York, and he just kept saying, he said, sir, tell me what your secret is. And he said, well, I don't have one. He said, well, tell us what you, what are you doing? How do you do this? He said, I don't know. He said, sir, there's got to be something. Tell, people are waiting to find out. Tell us, tell us. He said, well, I don't know. He said, all I can tell you is I get a block of wood and I get my knife and I carve everything out of that wood that ain't horse. And that's what Jesus is doing. He'll hold you fast. And he's carving everything out of your life that ain't Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's why you know he holds you fast. I wished I could sing. My goodness, I wished I could. If I could, this is what I'd sing for you right now. One of my favorite hymns. Though the angry surges roll on my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor, safe and sure, that can ever more endure, and it holds. My anchor holds. Blow your wildness then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace, I shall not fail, for my anchor holds. My anchor surely holds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who is perfecting us, who is purifying us, and who is preparing us so we rejoice in our sufferings. That they're ours that you have designed under pressure to produce endurance, endurance character, character hope, because the love of God has not removed the sufferings, but holds us fast, forms us, frames us, perfects us, purifies us, polishes us, and is preparing us. Do your work, O Lord, and we will rejoice because you holding us fast. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.